True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the final part of our 27th case together. As I say at the start of every episode, if you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all of the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are also available now on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel, so please, if you enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. Please note that this is the third part of this case, so if you've not listened to part one or part two, then please pause here and go and listen to episode 30 and episode 31, which was released in the last two weeks, or you'll not have a clue about what I'm talking about. So the scene of our story over the last two weeks has been the island of Koh Tao in the Gulf of Thailand. It was not until I started researching the case of David Miller and Hannah Witheridge that I realised that there was a number of suspicious deaths which had happened on the island which had somewhat been swept under the rug when it came to investigations. To quote one Australian news source, there is so much going on on the island it could almost have its own CSI franchise. Once again, I just want to clarify that I'm not saying that these are all murders and I'm not trying to start any form of conspiracy theory, but I will say that some of these deaths do leave a lot more questions than they have answers. The only reason that I've considered including these is because there are links to our last case. It was the powerful post by Laura Witheridge which made me question this further. When I heard all of the accusations of foreign nationals dying in mysterious circumstances, I thought I'd probably be looking at three or four maybe over a five-year period. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Kotal lifestyle has claimed the lives of 16 foreign nationals over the past 20 years and I thought I would see what I could find out about them. I'm going to tell you their stories, and I'm going to let you make up your own mind whether there is anything more to the story than what has been reported. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been dedicated to the memory of the other 14 victims of this paradise. So once again, I just want to clarify 
that no one has ever been arrested or charged for most of these deaths. But it was also clear that not a lot of investigation was conducted into these deaths either. For the first story today, I'm going to have to take you all the way back to the start of this millennium. Ian Jacobs was from Sutton Coalfield near Birmingham in England's Midlands. In January 2000, Ian, who was 35 at the time, went on holiday to Koh Tao for a diving holiday. On the 15th of January 2000, Ian's body was found head first down a concrete pipe that was sticking out of the ground. His neck was broken. The pipe's location was away from the populated area and was in a less desirable part of the island. The Thai police claimed pretty much straight away that he had stumbled back to his bungalow where he was living drunk and fell down a well. They said he'd hit his head on the fall which had broken his neck. Witnesses at the time, however, said that it was not possible to stumble into the pipe which was the size of a small storm drain and not a well. Ian's friend Mick Locke travelled to Kotal to investigate. He saw the pipe when he arrived on the island, but soon after his questioning began, Mick said that it was bulldozed over before he had the chance to take any photographs. Mick understood that Ian had recently written letters to other friends in which Ian had said that he had loaned a small amount of money, a few hundred pounds, to a Thai man on the island. After a couple of days of asking questions and trying to do his own investigation, Mick said that the Thai police recommended that he leave Koh Tao as soon as possible. Ian Yarwood, who runs the Facebook page Koh Tao Death Island, has only just brought this case to light and the details of the death are very brief, but an interesting point to add to this case was that Ian Jacobs' body was cremated very soon after it was found and before any family could arrive on the island. This case sounds very suspicious to me, but with the lack of any evidence or police report, everything that we would suggest is merely speculation. For example, if he has tripped and fallen into a pipe, why has he tripped head first? If there was nothing suspect about his death, then why was he cremated so quickly? Why was his friend asked to leave the island? And why was the offending pipe bulldozed? So one answer could be that he had dropped something down there and that he had fallen down looking for it. With regards to the cremation, that was something that was done in the Buddhist faith, which 95% of Thailand is. A cremation is deemed to release the soul, but usually a Buddhist funeral is a family occasion, so the fact that it was done without any of his family present, I can't explain. The bulldozing of the pipe may have been due to health and safety, but the empirical evidence which is going to follow when I look at other cases on the island is that there's not a great deal to suggest that this is an issue in Thailand. It's the lack of an investigation which makes this case suspect. The rest of the cases though, there are significantly more details about, 
that the next suspicious death documented officially didn't occur until 12 years later. Ben Harrington was born on the 9th of July 1980 and was from Rygate in Surrey. His mother Pat said Ben lived life to the full and he wasn't afraid of anything. He had so many friends and always had time for them all. He studied at St Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Linkfield Lane, Redhill, before going to Starhill School in Dorking. After getting his first Saturday job in a butcher's at 14, Ben went on to work in a greyhound kennel, before eventually becoming a senior accounts manager at the Hawley-based IT firm, Cal. This was not Ben's passion, however, as he had always wanted to join the Royal Marines. After passing the interviews and the fitness test, he was told that he couldn't join because he'd torn ligaments in his left leg during one of the assault courses. Pat admitted that she had her reservations about her son joining an organisation where he'd be involved in conflict, and although Ben was disappointed, she admitted to being pleased about his injury, which kept him out. She added, Ben had a very big, kind heart. He was always there for us. He was our bodyguard and looked after his brothers when they were growing up. They were not just brothers, they were all best friends and loved each other dearly. He was very much a family man and had an aura about him that kept us all going. He was so full of life and we miss him so much. He travelled lots and enjoyed venturing into the unknown. When he went to Thailand he was so excited and could not stop talking about it. He had itchy feet and was always planning his next adventure. Ben had left the villa that he was sharing with his friend Mark on a rented motorcycle and headed towards the bars lining Syrie Beach. Two hours later though, at 12.30am, on the 30th of August. He was found dead, lying in a ditch. According to the police, Ben had lost control of his bike on one of Kotal's dirt roads and collided with an electricity pylon. The impact, a typos mortem claimed, broke his neck, almost turning his head 180 degrees. The family have never seen proof that Ben's motorbike collided with an electricity pylon. More confusing, though, was the second autopsy carried out in Britain, contradicting the Thai finding and saying that Ben had died from blunt force trauma to his chest and it had ruptured his aorta. Pat has never been satisfied with the police's investigation and has never understood why the results of the UK autopsy did not match the explanation into Ben's death given by the Thai authority and suspects that he was mugged as his watch and his wallet were never recovered. We've been told that there are people who go down these dark roads and use wire when bikes come along. They just trip them up, mug them and run off, she says. She has spent years fighting for information from the Thai authorities about her son's death, including 
submitting freedom of information requests to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Pat said she is very suspicious of the explanation and had to fight to prevent the body being quickly cremated, saying the Thai authorities wanted to cremate Ben the next day, but I screamed and shouted and it stopped. I had awful problems getting anyone on the telephone at first. When he was finally laid to rest in the UK, Pat said Ben's funeral was the biggest that I'd ever seen. People were standing outside as there was no room left in the church. He was so popular and loved by so many. He has left us with such a huge void in our lives and will never be forgotten. Even though to date all of our appeals to the Thai authorities and requests to British ministers have fallen on deaf ears, Pat has never given up hope on finding out what happened to Ben. Pat set up the Ben Harrington repatriation charity page on Facebook, a charity which helps families to bring home loved ones who have died abroad. We still need to raise lots for the charity that we are trying to set up in his name and have already had people asking for our help but unfortunately we do not have enough funds to do this. But we have lots of other plans ahead to raise more and help others in the same situation that we have found ourselves in. The third person that I want to talk about passed away shortly after and this is Nick Pearson who was found dead on New Year's Day 2014. This incident is the one that I mentioned briefly in part one of this case. Nick was on a family holiday with his brother Matt and parents Tracy and Graham on Kotal. He was found dead on New Year's Day. Chillingly, his body was found in the water close to where Hannah Witheridge and David Miller were found only a few months later. The family were from Derby in the East Midlands and had been visiting the island where Nick's brother Matt had been working. The family were holidaying amongst a large group of friends when the incident occurred. They had been out to enjoy dinner and drinks on New Year's Eve and had a cocktail in Chopper's Bar and Grill, the same bar visited by Hannah and David. After their meal, they said they were going to Syrie Beach to watch the fireworks and at around 1am, Nick's father walked him to the bungalow which they were staying in and watched him get into bed. On New Year's Day, concerns were raised that Nick had not been seen. Later friends came to see Tracy, Nick's mum, to inform her that staff at the resort had said that he had been found dead in the sea. Nick's body had been found by scuba divers. The police suspected that Nick had fallen 50 feet from the window of his hotel room. But his parents are disputing that version of events and believe that he had been followed back to his bungalow and told reporters that they were warned to keep quiet by people on Kotel. I fell to my knees, Tracy said. I could not believe what I was hearing. The family were taken to a temple to identify their son and noticed that his head was gashed 
and soon started to question the police's version of events. When Nick's brother Matt fell to his knees, crying over his passing, he was comforted by a European resident of Kotal, who warned him not to make a fuss, implying horrible things happen to people who do. Tracy said, even in our shock and grief, we knew it did not add up. He would never have gone swimming along, and if he had fallen from his bungalow, his body would have been stopped on the rocks or been badly injured. It did not look as if he had been in the water for hours. There was still dry blood on his body. A four foot high rock blocking the cliff edge made it impossible to fall accidentally, said his mother. He could not have fallen over that rock, she insisted. She told reporters that police did not even look in his room or seem to conduct any form of real investigation into his death. She also said that he had met a girl that he liked and wondered if in some way he had caused offence as he had been warned off by a group of locals in a bar. An autopsy back in the UK revealed that Nick had drowned but there was no broken bones. That seemed strange for having fallen 50 metres. The post-mortem said that it was possible that he was attacked before drowning. When an inquiry was conducted back in the UK, Derby Coroner Louise Pinder said that there was not enough evidence to say how he had died and recorded an open verdict. Pathologist Dr Michael Biggs told the hearing that there were many injuries on Nick's body, including to the head, limbs and face. But he said that most of these would have been present prior to his death, although he could not completely rule out the possibility that Nick had been attacked. The coroner, Miss Pinder, concluded that there was not enough evidence to say where or how he had met his death. Tracy and Graham said, It seems like they just wanted to protect their tourist industry, but we need to know what happened. The investigation was closed by the police, with answers still needed by the family. Not all of these people I'm going to feature in this episode are British, however. Hans-Peter Zutter was a 44-year-old Swiss man who went missing on November the 8th, 2014 from Syri Beach and is believed to have drowned. Hans-Peter's body was found on the shore of Lang Swan, which is in the district of Champon, which is on the Thai mainland, over 56 miles away by sea from where he was last seen on the 18th of November 2014. The police said that identifications such as a tattoo on his back and a gold tooth, coupled with the fact that the body was wearing orange shorts and black shoes, matching what Hans Peter was last seen in, they could confirm that the body was him. They said that the body of Hans Peter was being sent to Surat Tuni Hospital for forensic examination that afternoon. This death is not as obviously suspicious as the others until you question the police's reporting. They claimed that three days before he went missing, 
he was told by a doctor that he should not swim because it could lead to blindness, but yet he still went on to complete an advanced diving course. They also said that he was under stress and did not have any money. They also said that he left his passport and personal items at the diving shop that he had hired his equipment from, but did not take a life jacket with him. Apparently, however, it was said by a witness who found the body that it was in better condition than one would have expected for it to have been in the water for 10 days, especially as it was found over 80 kilometers from where he had gone missing on a completely different island. I'm not inclined to believe, however, that this was foul play based on the evidence. But death at sea is one of the major contributors to deaths of foreign nationals on Kotal. The following victims' deaths were more avoidable and due to negligence rather than suspicious. Celia Matheson was a 22-year-old from Lillehammer in Norway who was eight minutes into a diving lesson off the coast of Syrie Beach when she was struck on the back of the head by one of the dive boat's propellers and later died in hospital. Celia attended a Discover Scuba Diving course on December the 22nd, 2014. This is an approximately two-hour induction before going out and diving with a dive instructor. The police did arrest the driver for causing death by dangerous driving, but worse still, the diving company also forgot to email their insurance company a list of the divers on that day. Therefore, the premium which was paid as part of the dive fee was never actually activated. Subsequently, a payout of 1 million baht, or just over £24,000, was never paid to the family of Celia. Bjorn Ole and Lenya, Celia's parents, believed that the diver's partner, the English dive leader, who led Celia's novice dive, is the main culprit for the tragedy, and that the legal process is incomplete without him being held accountable in court. However, the Englishman left Thailand in the summer of 2016 and was not wanted for extradition from the UK by the police who had closed the investigation. One thing that the police investigation revealed was that the dive manager did not have a work permit to work in Thailand and after an internal investigation the Professional Association of Diving Instructors announced that he was expelled from their organisation. The driver pleaded guilty in court and offered to pay 200,000 baht to Celia's family, but the unnamed British man was never extradited back to Thailand. He was, however, found guilty in his absence. Another incident happened just over two years later. Shelley Bott was a 51-year-old Canadian who also succumbed to a boating accident. Shelley was from Penticton in British Columbia and had gone to Thailand for a month. On the 8th of February 2017, Shelley and her partner Jack Williams 
were scuba diving off of Syri Beach when she was struck by a water taxi taking a shortcut through a cordoned off area for swimmers only. Shelley was cremated in a Thai Buddhist temple and instead of her partner Jack returning back after the holiday of a lifetime with Shelley, he returned with just her ashes. No charges were ever bought in the case despite the death being caused again by the taxi driver. On the 17th of December 2018, Rocio Gomez, who was a 37-year-old from Argentina, suffered an accident while participating in a diving excursion on her first day of instruction with the school Pura Vida Diving, owned by Spanish instructors. Sources from this company described that Rocio was lost in this dive along with another beginner an experienced diver and the instructor. Those close to Rocio claim that there was negligence on behalf of the people who were in charge of the excursion. After the first dive in which everything apparently went according to plan, Rocio began her second dive with her instructor who was also Argentine, Nahul Martino and two other people. Apparently, and according to those who were in the boat, Rocio had some problems with her mask and the instructor had to ascend to the surface in order to solve the problem. After that, the dive continued, but for some unknown reason, Rocio disappeared from the instructor's view. It was another diver who from the surface finally spotted her without the regulator to breathe in her mouth and about seven metres deep. After emerging, the instructor's attempted resuscitation and first aid was carried out by two other tourists who were doctors. According to those who were in her boat, Rocio suffered three heart attacks and convulsions during the trip to the mainland. On Wednesday the 19th, she was transferred by plane to Bangkok, where the following day she was declared brain dead. Rocio Gomez finally died on December the 21st. The foreign ministry got in touch with the family of Rocio, but were not interested in carrying out any type of investigation. The final drowning accident was to 22-year-old software engineer Samyak Chowdhury, who was from India. He could swim and was wearing a life vest. Strangely, when he was recovered face down in the water, it was reported that some red bubble liquid came out of his nose. This very strange death happened in March 2019 and remained unreported in the mainstream media. Samyak's father is having problems in obtaining further details of the exact circumstances of the incident, but one has to wonder whether Samyak was injured before he entered the water, or while he was in the water, which might explain the red bubble liquid, which is possibly blood coming from his nose. Valentina Novozhenova was a 23-year-old from Moscow in Russia. Valentina 
had just graduated with a bachelor degree and she had also just completed four years of dive training in Russia. But her mother said that most of her dives had taken place in a swimming pool and not in the open sea. Her mother stated that she loved nature and hiking as well. Her communications on VK, a social network platform popular amongst Russian users, showed that she left Moscow for Bangkok on the 7th of February and arrived on the same day. She posted pictures of her sightseeing in the Thai capital a day later, as well as pictures of the hotel and beach in Koh Tao on February the 10th. On February the 11th, at 8.44am, she posted a message saying that her mobile phone was broken and that she would need to have it fixed. Then, a minute later, she posted that she was on the beach and would find something to eat. At 10.26am, she posted that her mobile phone was back working again and that she was heading to Shalok Beach to take pictures. Many of these pictures were posted up about 2.45pm. Her last posts on social media were on February the 13th when she posted about cats and the Indian food roti as well as her diving activities. She said she loved free diving which involves diving deep without scuba air cylinders. She said that she could freedive to a depth of 22.3 metres and posted a picture to show how deep that was. She added that she would dive deeper next time. Valentina disappeared from her Kotal hotel room on February the 16th, the day she was supposed to check out after a week-long stay. The initial investigation suggested that no clues of an attack or murder had taken place in her hotel room, the police chief said after it had been searched. Her latest communications via social media indicated that she wanted to dive deeper than 22.3 metres without an assistant or equipment. Police sought cooperation from diving groups in the area to help search for her. In her room at the hotel, her belongings including her passport, clothes, bags and mobile phone were found. That suggested that she intended to return to the room, police said. They also added that Valentina mentioned on WhatsApp that she had consulted a psychiatrist on the 3rd of February because she feared something but did not indicate the cause. The psychiatrist advised her to enrol in a long-term therapy program. On the 10th of March, human remains were found on the seabed just off Shalock Beach, but when they were tested, they were not Valentina's. Her family suspect that foul play was involved in her disappearance. The police ceased the search shortly after the remains were found but Valentina is still missing to this day. Alexander Bukspan was a 33-year-old from the former Soviet Republic of Moldova. Immigration records showed that he had entered the country 
on the 26th of September 2018 at Bangkok Airport before travelling to the island where he had stayed in the Monsoon Gym and Fight Club. On the 9th of October, a security guard from Big Blue Diving said that he had found a mobile phone, clothes, a hotel key, shoes and an ID on the beach at around half past one in the morning during his routine patrol. When he returned to the same spot at 3am, the items were still there, so he decided to alert the police. The items belonged to the Moldovan. Police checked the room at the boxing gym where he was staying and found nothing suspicious. Alexander was found dead in the sea just off of Syri Beach on the same afternoon. The body of Alexander was taken to the mortuary for preliminary autopsy at Kopanyang Hospital and then was airlifted by a police helicopter from the hospital to the Provincial Police Region 8 headquarters on the mainland. A van belonging to Satasurat Tunai Foundation, a rescue volunteer group, then took the body to a hospital in Bangkok. The police ruled this death as Alexander taking a late night swim and getting into trouble resulting in him dying. The body of Dmitri Povs, who was a 28 year old French national, was found hanging from the ceiling on the balcony of his room at the Ta Chin bungalows on New Year's Day 2015. His hands were loosely tied behind his back. Police said though that there was no signs of a fight or a struggle. There was a suicide note on his bed that said in French, Iris, I love you. Suicide seems so easy, but it is actually difficult. A woman Dimitri had been interested in said that he had called her twice on the phone that night but she had not picked up because she had been asleep. Dimitri's friends claimed that they'd gone out with him to a bar called Next Door on New Year's Eve until 5am before moving to the experience party and staying there until 11am. His friends returned to their guest houses, leaving him drinking alone. Police and physicians carried out an autopsy and believed that the cause of death was asphyxiation. The case was being treated as suicide. Lieutenant General Somsak Norud, the police commander for the region, said authorities have questioned many witnesses, but did not find a motive for homicide. Friends of Dimitri said he was interested in a foreign woman on Kotao, but his interest was unrequited. There were people that believed that Dimitri's suicide was staged due to the fact that his hands were tied behind his back and did not buy the police's narrative on the case, believing that there was foul play. The commander added that since Dimitri's hands were only loosely tied, he may have inserted his hands into the rope just before committing suicide. One of the more infamous cases on the island 
is that of Elise Delamange. Elise Delamange was a 30-year-old Belgian tourist whose body was found in the jungle on April the 28th, 2017. Elise had a degree in medicine from the European Institute of Natural Medicine in Brussels. Elise had been living on a yoga and tantra retreat on the neighbouring island of Kopanyang and she had been travelling around Asia for the past two years. She left on a ferry on April the 19th but it is not known why she alighted on Kotao instead of continuing to the mainland. Questions remain about the circumstances of her death including the bizarre days that led up to it. Her family dispute the suicide ruling and believe that she was murdered. A grainy black and white still from a CCTV camera was released and showed the back of a woman walking down a concrete path towards the jungle where Elise was found. Adding further mystery to the case, her mother, Michelle Van Echten, told the Sun newspaper that the woman in the image appeared to be too big to be her daughter. She said, That's not Elise's silhouette. She was much slimmer. That's not the way she was walking. Elise's body was found 200 yards from the place where the CCTV had captured the image among the rocks behind the family Tanoat Bay Resort on April the 28th. The mystery surrounding Elise's death has grown after it was revealed that she was using a fake last name to check into accommodation in the weeks before her death. Michelle has claimed that her daughter used a fake name of Elise Dubois to check into the Triple B bungalows next to Mayhead Pier on Kotal as she travelled via the island to the mainland on her route back to the capital, Bangkok. An unexplained fire on the 21st of April burned down three bamboo huts including the one that Elise had been staying in. Police blamed a candle that was likely to have been lit in her room, but did not collect any evidence after the fact because the owner of the resort did not file a complaint. Elise fled two and a half kilometres through the jungle to Tanoat Bay and checked into a room at the Poseidon Resort where she booked another ticket to Bangkok leaving three days later on April the 24th. But eight days after the fire, locals near Tanoat Bay became suspicious of a monitor lizard going backward and forth to the jungle. When they went to investigate, they reportedly found Elise's half-eaten body among rocks. Police told Elise's mother Michelle that her daughter had committed suicide about three days before she was found, but denied reports that her body had been eaten by animals or wrapped up. No suicide note or message was recovered, and Michelle is still desperate for information surrounding the mysterious death of her daughter. Michelle says that she does not believe the Thai police's version of events fearing the authorities are working to suppress the series of grisly tourist murders. Michelle made the details of her daughter's death public while appealing for information, 
saying the case would have gone unnoticed otherwise. She told magazine Dev Farang that investigators had promised her a copy of her daughter's autopsy report, but no such document had been provided. Michelle said, I do not believe what the police have told us. We fear that somebody else was involved. When the investigation was completed, an unnamed source from the Bangkok's Crime Suppression Division claimed that Elise had tried to kill herself a few weeks before her death on April the 4th at Bangkok's Nopawong Railway Station in the Old Town. She allegedly attempted to jump in front of a train but was saved by witnesses in the area. Supposedly, she was rescued from death by railway police and members of the public before being sent to an institute of psychiatry for a checkup before she arrived on Kotal. An investigator on the case attempted to find a record of that incident and the hospital's report about her mental health, but there was nothing online with regards to the outcome of that investigation. Another lead police were following was Elise's connection to the religious sect Sathya Sebaba. The sect is made up of followers of a deceased popular Indian guru that believed he was a reincarnation of God. Once again, the police have closed the investigation, but the family still wants answers. Three more deaths on the island are slightly more complex. Erna Groch, who was a 47-year-old from Ingolstadt in Germany, is the first of these. Bernard was a wealthy entrepreneur who moved to the island in 1998, buying two properties and building up a motorbike rental business called Lederhosen Bikes. He left in 2016 after becoming frustrated with the corruption and hostility towards foreign business owners. He started another business on the neighbouring island of Kopangyang before returning to tie up loose ends. Bernard recently separated from his wife Oe, who was a Kotal native, with whom he had a seven-year-old daughter, Benny. But Bernard's family claimed that the circumstances surrounding his death and the local police's refusal to cooperate with them have led them to believe that this death is suspicious. On the 17th of June 2018, his body was found at his home deep in the jungle in the Mayhead area of the island, just south of Syrie Beach. To date, no autopsy result has been obtained by the family, only vague explanations and speculations about an alleged fatal bite from a venomous snake or cardiovascular failure without any further evidence. The family refused to accept the cause of death until there was significant forensic evidence. Initially, the authorities on Kotal had announced that Bernard's body had been transferred to Surat Tini for the first post-mortem, but his body was back on Kotal within 24 hours. How did the transport from the island of Kotal to Surat Tini and back to Kotal, including a forensic medical examination, take place within 24 hours 
his relatives back in Bavaria asked. The German embassy stated, We wanted the recognised forensic scientist of Dr. Pontip Rojan Sudarand to conduct the autopsy. She has a reputation of an independent medical examiner in Thailand. But in the end, Bernard's remains ended up in the Bangkok Police Forensic Institute, where all previous body finds from Koh Tao have been examined. The family in Bavaria wanted to know why Pontip Rojana Sunarund could not perform the autopsy of Bernard's body, as they requested. His sister was informed that the investigation at the Bangkok Police Institute for Forensic Medicine would take at least 30 days and the remains would have to remain there until then. Bernard's mother, sister and her cousin had guaranteed to cover all the costs for an independent autopsy and to pay for the return to Germany. Bernard's wife, despite the fact that they were separated, refused to sign the repatriation papers. Under Thai law, as a Thai woman and legal wife, she was the only one authorised to sign. Bernard's relatives in Ingolstadt feared that Bernard would be cremated quietly and then the case would be cleared for the Thai authorities and Kotel. We will have to live with the uncertainty, said Bernard's cousin Christina. Again, the case is closed with the family still desperate for answers. The penultimate person's story that we are going to hear about today is Christina Annersley. Christina Annersley was born in Lower Hutt on New Zealand's North Island and was 23 years old. She had moved with her family to Orpington in South London and was partway through a four-month trip across Southeast Asia. She departed for Thailand on the 7th of January 2015. She started her trip in hostels, but after her experiences of sharing wash facilities, she decided to rent a bungalow. From a local businessman, whose name was Montrewat Tuvekian. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the same one. Christina, like David Miller, had also graduated from Leeds University, gaining a Bachelor of Science degree in History, obtaining a 2-1 grade. She planned to return to do her Master's degree when she had got back from Asia. She died two weeks after arriving on Koh Tao Island, after mixing antibiotics she was taking for a chest infection with alcohol. Christina's mother, Margaret, gave the cause of death as natural causes initially. Posting on her daughter's Facebook page, she wrote, We have lost our beautiful daughter, Chrissy, in Thailand, of natural causes. We are totally devastated. We love you so much, darling. Rest in peace. We will bring you home soon, mum and dad. Her boyfriend, Ollie, wrote, I'll never stop missing you, darling. I'm sorry I wasn't there when you needed me most. You were my inspiration. I love you. 
but Christina's family soon started to believe that she was murdered. Her parents slammed the Thai authorities for failing to investigate the death, with her dad Boyne claiming that the police did not carry out a toxicology report. He said at the time, We don't know how or why she died. She had medication for a chest infection and was drinking, but the Thai police failed to investigate if the combination was significant enough to kill her. He also had to track down a man seen on surveillance footage leaving his daughter's bungalow hours before she was discovered. The last person to see Christina alive and he had not been questioned by the police, even though officers had his name on their files. Christina's mother, Margaret, said that they had tracked him down via Facebook to Sweden and had spoken to him over the telephone as his number was on his profile. Really complex detective work for a law enforcement agency, obviously. We have spoken to someone we think is helpful, she said. Her dad saying that it was a highly emotional conversation. Her death is still unexplained. Her body was left in a temple for days before the post-mortem examination was performed, meaning that any drugs that were in her bloodstream were no longer there. The UK coroner her family contacted upon Christina's arrival back home would not accept the results from the Thai authorities, ruling an open verdict. The, The open verdict is an option open to the coroner's jury at an inquest in the legal system of England and Wales. The verdict means that the jury confirms that the death is suspicious, but is unable to reach any other verdicts open to them. The last case that I should look at today is the one that Laura Witheridge mentioned in her Facebook status that I quoted in part two, and that is Liam Miller. Liam Miller was a 26-year-old bricklayer from Newport in the Isle of Wight. He had travelled to Kotal with two friends, James and Nicole Gissing, on the 22nd of December 2015 to spend Christmas and New Year there. They spent the evening of the 7th of January 2016 at the Sunset Bar on Syri Beach. The following morning, Liam's body was found at the bottom of the pool. Thai police ruled that his death was down to the fact that he had drowned whilst being intoxicated and the external injuries on his body were due to the barbed wire of the DJ booth by the pool that he must have climbed up. The wounds on his face, said the police, were probably caused by the barbed wire as he climbed up to jump into the pool from the DJ booth. But the question is, who saw this? Were there any witnesses? There should be some, but there's no reference to any. And if there were people around the pool, did they leave him just to drown? Wasn't there even a bartender? The security guards who regularly searched the pool for lost belongings after parties did not find Liam when they made their search at 5.30 local time in the morning. His body was discovered at 7.20am. It's not the sort of answer that a mother would want to hear, 
and Luke's mother had already been in contact with the BBC, asking them for help about the shortage of information. There were lots of rumours on Kotal about his wounds, and his family were anxious to get the body back. At the Bangkok Police Hospital, a spokesman said it can hang on to the body for 14 days, but did not say whether the body had been released or not. In Britain, over £11,000 had been raised to bring Luke home and give him a send-off. Again, the police announced that the investigation had been closed and that the cause of death was drowning, with no clues signalling to a murder. The whole aim of this episode was not to point blame at anybody, but merely to have a platform to show the other deaths that have taken place on Kotal. I feel that a few of these have been escalated simply because of the lack of information coming out from the police. The distrust for a police force whose reputation of being corrupted leads to speculation. Now I know, I've only been looking into this case for about a month, unlike people like Ian Yarwood, who has dedicated years to the subject. I would recommend you go over to his Kotal Death Island Facebook page, as he has theories on there that if I investigated all of them, I would still be writing about this subject until Christmas. He seems a top bloke as well, having spoken to him this week. I'll post a link on the main Facebook page. His opinion may differ from mine on some cases, but I would highly recommend giving it a visit. However, there are definitely some interesting things that do not make sense in all of these situations. Just a quick interesting stat that I found when I was researching this. One million Britons a year visit Thailand. But according to figures issued by the Foreign Office between 2014 and 2016, 1,151 British nationals died there. In 2015-2016, Thailand was second only to Spain in the number of British deaths, though in that year, Britons made 30 times more visits to Spain. I just want to leave you today with a quote from the Mayor of Kotal when he was questioned by a Channel 4 documentary into the deaths. Chayan Turasakul said firstly with direct reference to the passing of Christina in the British media, it may mislead foreign tourists who've never been to Kotal to think that Kotal is full of mafia who like to kill or exploit foreign tourists. This is really what some foreign tourists think. I've seen them on social media. They have assumptions that match what they think, then publish those assumptions because that's how the media works. Do whatever will draw the attention of the readers. Then, with reference to tourists as a whole, he said, These foreigners who come to Kotal live the lifestyle they want to without realising that they're not in their country. They are not allowed to do as they wish. There is a difference between their culture and our culture. 
So when foreigners live according to their cultures, this leads to accidents and risks to their lives. For example, taking an overdose or driving a car too fast leading to an accident, going diving without taking any safety precautions and many other things. It all depends on fate. However, most of the incidents I come across, the foreigners are dead drunk and can't even recall what happened. I would say that this is one of the main problems. So that's it for this week. I really hope that you found this case interesting. I thought I'd change things up a bit this season. It's still very much trial and error for me. Please let me know your thoughts with regards to anything to do with these last three episodes on social media. I'm intrigued to know what people believe has been missed in some of these cases. I will continue our fortnightly episodes now, so make sure you keep your passports out as this podcast is not going to be returning to the UK for a few weeks. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. That's at True Crime Fix Pod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page. That's True Crime Fix Podcast. But there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everyone on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the new website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also remember that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so please search True Crime Fix. If you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Or go through the Contact Us page on the website. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone. <laughs>